Lord, thank you so much for just the, the privilege of being together to study your word together. Thank you for all of our teachers this morning that have prepared so hard to teach our children and our adults. Uh, we thank you, Lord, for our Cornerstone family, uh, the flock of God here. I pray, Father, that you would help me to labor and serve them well. I pray that you would fill us all with your Holy Spirit, um, that we would, Lord, be able to really drink in the promise of the Holy Spirit through the scriptures, as we're going to see this morning, and that we would grow, that there would be a growing burning in our hearts that would result in joy and worship. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so the opening question in the, by the way, this class is Systematic Theology 1. Systematic Theology 1. We're going to kind of go over some of the particulars in your packet that's on the front of the page at the end of the class. I want to jump right into our material, and then we'll kind of hit some of the upcoming things in the class right on the back end. So the question is, does having pieces of a puzzle guarantee a completed puzzle? What might hamper you from being able to complete a puzzle if you're working on a puzzle either by yourself or with your family? Yeah, missing pieces. Isn't that a bummer? You take out the puzzle, you're working on it, finally you realize there's some missing pieces. What else? Anybody ever have a puzzle where it's like there's a bunch of pieces from different puzzles all thrown into the same box? And you, and you don't really, yeah, you have too many pieces. You don't really have all of the pieces from the right puzzle. Um, I don't know about you, but I'm just not good at puzzles. I just, I don't have an ability to see all the things I'm supposed to see. Some people can just put these things together very well. That's not me. Um, but what do you guys do when you're putting a puzzle together? Those of you guys that are good at this, what's like one of the first things you do? Yeah, you want to find the border, find the edges. And then what might be another thing that you might do? Yeah, look at the picture on the box, right? Have that box sitting right there in front of you. Yeah, you're, you're going to try to put things into categories, right? Colors, you're going to try to systematize the different pieces. So now that you can start bringing things together. And, and if you follow a certain method, a lot of times that puzzle is going to come together quicker than you were expecting. And plus, it'd be really nice if you happen to have the actual puzzle maker sitting right next to you saying, yeah, this is what I did, and here's how it fits together. Um, but just imagine for a second that you were divinely restrained from seeing the puzzle. Um, you were blind. You couldn't really discern the edges. You couldn't discern the colors and pictures. You're not able to systematize because for one reason or another, your eyes have actually been restrained. That's part of the issue um, in Luke 24. And I want to encourage you to open to Luke 24. We're going to start off our class uh, of this is the theology and history track, systematic theology one. But we're going to start off by looking at Luke 24 to kick off this whole idea of what is systematic theology? Why should we study it and how should we study it? I want to look at this text as a means to get to those questions. And so I'm going to make basically eight observations of Luke 24 verses 13 to the end of the chapter. And with this whole motif of this puzzle, I want, I want you guys to keep a puzzle in mind. How do the pieces come together? How do we bring a puzzle together? 
and, and then we're going to kind of wrap this up by answering those three questions at the end. Does that sound fair? What is systematic theology? Why should we study it? How should we study it? We're going to try to answer those three questions through this text with the motif of a puzzle. You guys see the nice little puzzle pieces in the background? I worked very hard on that. Okay. So let's start in, in verse 13. The first point that we're going to make is that Cleopas and a friend reason with pieces of gospel facts, but with a sad, dissembled interpretation of the facts. Let's read this part of our text together down to verse 24. Now, behold, two of them uh, were traveling that same day to a village called Emmaus, which was seven miles from Jerusalem. So they're traveling west from Jerusalem towards the Mediterranean. And um, there's two of them. We're told down in verse 18 that one of them is Cleopas. We don't really know the name of the other one, but it might be his wife. If you look at John 19, 25, there's a mention of Cleopas's wife named Mary. We're not really sure. Verse 14, and they talk together of all these things. What things? All the things that had happened with Christ and his death and even the resurrection that is mentioned earlier in the chapter. Verse 15, so it was while they conversed and reasoned or disputed that Jesus himself drew near and went with them. Now, I don't know about you, but if I'd see Jesus drawing near to me, I'd be like, whoa, this is the answer. We're, we're so excited. But there's a problem. Verse 16, their eyes were restrained so that they did not know him. This is actually a theme that you see in the book of, of Luke. Many different times you see people throughout the book uh, that there's information that's hidden from them. Sovereignly so. We won't look at all the different verses, but you go back and look at chapter 9 verse 45 1834 other places <clears throat> this idea of people's eyes being restrained happens all throughout uh, the book of Luke and this happens with Cleopas and his friend so verse 17 and he said Jesus said to them what kind of conversation is this that you have with one another as you walk and are what sad these people are sad Think about this. Jesus is just raised from the dead, and yet they're sad. Why are they sad? Verse 18, Then the one whose name was Cleopas answered and said to him, Are you the only stranger in Jerusalem, and have you not known the things which happened there in these days? That's pretty ironic. Do you not know? Like, speaking to the resurrected Lord, don't you know this stuff? Verse 19, and he said to them, what things? I love how the Lord, all throughout the Bible, he kind of lowers himself down to our level and he allows us to explain ourselves and to kind of walk through life. What things? So they said, now notice some of the things that they're going to list here. These are really good facts. They said to him, the things concerning Jesus of Nazareth. Okay, they've got his, his name and uh, where he's from, correct, who was a prophet, mighty indeed, in word before God and all the people. He, he was a prophet. Verse 20, and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to be condemned to death and crucified. He was crucified. Verse 21, but we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. 
Indeed, besides all this, today is the third day since these things happen. Um, so let's just focus on the fact that they know it's the third day. They have some semblance of redemption. Verse 22. Yes, certain women of our company who arrived at the tomb earlier astonished us. When they did not find his body, they came saying that they had also seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. And certain of these uh, who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the woman said, but him they did not see. Notice all of the truths and facts that they recite to Jesus Christ. They note um, that his name is Jesus. Um, that he's from Nazareth, that he's a prophet, that he was crucified, that there's something called redemption. It's been three days. There's a tomb. There's a body not in the tomb. And yet, what does verse 17 say their disposition is? They're sad. Why would they be sad when they have all of these gospel facts? They have all of the right information. They have truth right before them. And yet... They're sad because they have a dissembled interpretation of the facts. Look again at verse 21. But we were what? Hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. They had a hope that Jesus was going to redeem Israel right then. Kick out the Romans, set up his kingdom, and now we're going to move on and happily ever after. So they've got a wrong interpretation and they've got a wrong assembly of the right facts. One of the things that this tells us right out the gate is you can have the right information. You can even have biblical data, right biblical data. But if it's not properly assembled and if your eyes aren't open to the proper assembly of those facts, you can come to the wrong conclusion, which can result in. Sadness, depression, behaviors that are not conducive of a person who is a Christian and and would lead to our hope and our joy. Right. And so they have the right facts, uh, but they've got this problem. So Jesus comes along and he assembles the scriptural puzzle pieces together for them by thoroughly explaining one theme throughout the scriptures. And that theme we call Christology. Let's look at verses 25 to 27 together. And he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. When he says, O foolish ones and slow of heart, to believe this is probably with a sense of gentleness, but he's still rebuking them that they should be able to believe there's something in the, they've got the right facts, but their assembly of the facts, their epistemology, their ability to know how to believe and what to believe is in error or it's lacking. Why is it in error? Is it lacking? Slow to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. They knew some of what the prophets had spoken and they were assembling those according to a certain idea, but they didn't know all that the prophets had spoken. And then notice verse 26. I want to suggest that 26 is one of the edges of this puzzle. Ought not. It is necessary that the Christ 
was it not necessary for the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his what glory? So Jesus says it is necessary. Something's necessary that the Christ, not just the prophet, but the Christ, the Messiah should suffer and enter in to glory. This is one of the edges, I believe, of our puzzle piece. And he goes on and beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them what all the scriptures in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. Think about that. Cleopas and his friend get a Christology lesson from Christ. And he begins with Moses, means he goes back to Genesis and goes all the way through the prophets and through the writings. We call this the Tanakh. We'll talk about that later. Moses, prophets and writings and explains all of these things concerning himself. Um, He assembles the scriptural puzzle pieces together for them and thoroughly explains it. This idea uh, expounded in some of your translations or explained. The idea is that he's explaining through the scriptures and tying things together. He's doing good hermeneutics. He's doing good interpretation of the text and tying all the pieces together so that uh, these two could understand. Now, I want to suggest to you that it's doubtful that Jesus just read through the Old Testament from Genesis to Second Chronicles. In the Jewish uh, canon, you would start with Genesis, you would end with Chronicles. I don't think Jesus just read word by word through the whole book. Do you? No, probably what he did is he picked up pieces of texts, began to explain those texts in their context, according to the authorial intent, and then began to assemble a Christology from Genesis all the way through Chronicles. Um, So he would have explained them in context to give them a completed picture. Notice that our text here in verse 26 says, was it not necessary? The idea here is, is sovereign divine necessity that Christ, there's two things. He systematizes for them this explanation that he suffer and that he enter into his glory. We would say like his first advent and then some aspects of his second advent, although glory kind of overlaps with the church age. So Jesus systematizes the scriptures into these two main categories. Let's look at a third observation. The results of Christ's exposition and communion is burning hearts and open scriptures. Look at verse 28 to 32. Then they drew near to the village where they were going, and he indicated that he would have gone farther. That's just kind of funny to me. I mean, the Lord knows why he showed up here to talk to these two, but he's kind of play acting like, all right, I'm going to see you guys later. I'm going to keep going on my way. Uh, so, so he gives them an opportunity to respond to that. Verse 29, but they constrained him saying, abide with us for it is towards evening and the day is far spent. And he went in to stay with them. Okay. So remember that it's evening verse 30. Now it came to pass as he sat at the table with him probably still having conversation. They're still having Bible study. They're still doing systematic theology that he took bread, blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. Then their eyes were opened. 
So their eyes were restrained back in verse 16. Now their eyes are open. We would see this as just a sovereign act of God. God can conceal eyes. God can open eyes. This is something we're going to come to again and again this year is that God is in the business of concealing and revealing. All right. Sovereignly so. And as we study the scriptures, we're going to see him doing that. So he opens their eyes. Then they knew. Now they have the ability to come to the right knowledge and epistemology. They knew and he vanished from their sight. Man, I don't know about you, but how would you react if all of a sudden now you recognize it's Jesus? Now he's gone. It'd be kind of like joy and then like, oh, what just happened? That is crazy. So what do they do? Verse 32. And they said to one another, did not our heart burn within us while we talked, while he talked with us on the road and while he what opened the scriptures to us? What caused their hearts to burn the presence of Jesus as he opened the scriptures now, why does the resurrected Lord need to go back and refer to a dead old book? He's the resurrected Lord. If he wanted to, couldn't he have just revealed himself and say, hey, it's me. I'm resurrected. Let's talk about this miracle. <clears throat> Instead, he takes them back to Moses, the prophets and the writings, and he expounds. He ties together. He does systematic theology. Their hearts are burning and he's opening up their understanding of the scriptures, even though the miracle of the resurrection is standing right there before them. They just can't see it yet. So what we have here is the results of, of Christ's exposition in communion is burning hearts, open scriptures. Notice that the, 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 the theology lesson here is done in a communal setting, Jesus with these two, they're talking about the scriptures. They're conversing about the scriptures. They're having table fellowship. That takes us to a, a fourth observation. They return to Jerusalem that very hour and tell the eleven and the others what happened. They can't keep this to themselves. And when they return that very hour, what hour is it? It's nighttime. It's probably dark. They've got to go back how far? Seven miles. Seven miles when I was young and in good shape hiking in the mountains might take me about three hours, right? These days probably taking about four hours, maybe more. Who knows? But So they're hiking back up to Jerusalem in the middle of the night because they're so excited about the communion and the exposition of God's word. They have to go share it with the 11 and with the others. And so look at verse 33 and following. So they rose up that very hour, returned to Jerusalem, found the 11 and those who were with them gathered. It doesn't even seem like they can get their word out before the others are saying, the Lord is risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. And they uh, told about the things that had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of bread. And so uh, you can just imagine the fervor in the room as they're all sharing about the resurrected Lord. And and so then a fifth observation, Jesus stands in their midst uh, and this results in terror, fright, doubts, proof, joy and amazement. 
So now Jesus shows up again, verse 36. Now, as they said these things, Jesus himself stood in the midst of them. Their eyes are not cloaked at this point. He says, peace to you. But they were terrified and frightened and supposed they had seen a spirit. So it doesn't seem like they're completely in the know yet. Um, Verse 38. And he said to them, why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your hearts? So we know that some of them are doubting at this point. Verse 39, behold, my hands, my feet, that it is myself handle and see for a spirit does not have flesh and bone. As you see, I have when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. So he's given observable evidence of his resurrected body. Verse 41, but while they uh, still did not believe for joy and marveled, he said to them, have you any food? So notice in verse 41, they're still having trouble believing what they're seeing. They, they can see it with their eyes, but they're not really believing because of joy and amazement. They're so excited, so amazed, they just can't believe it. So the sadness that we had in verse 17 is now turning to joy and amazement. Um, and then he has this odd thing. He says, you guys have any food? Uh, got anything to eat? That's kind of an odd thing for Jesus to say. Verse 42. So they gave him a piece of broiled fish and some honeycomb. uh, Some of the translations say, and he took it and ate it in their presence. I could just, uh, I'd love to see a movie scene of this where everybody's just standing there with their mouths dropped open. Jesus asked for something to eat. They give him some fish and he just sits there and quietly eats. Well, they're all just watching him (laughs) chew his food quietly. Like what is going on here? And you guys, most of you have probably done enough study that Jesus is eating to demonstrate to them that I'm in a real physical body. I have really raised from the dead. This isn't just a spiritual resurrection. I want you to see. I want you to feel I'm eating. And so 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 they're seeing uh, physical evidence of what the scriptures had prophesied. It's resulting in terror, fright, doubts, proof, joy, amazement. That brings us to a sixth observation. Jesus does further exposition of the scriptures. You would think that just the miracle of the bodily resurrection of Christ would be enough. Why go to a dead old book? That should be enough. There's Jesus right there. That's all I need, Jesus. I don't need the Bible anymore. I've got you right in front of me. But right after the resurrection, Jesus turns back to this dead old book. And our sixth observation is that Jesus does further exposition of the scriptures. Look at verse 44 to 48. Then he said to them, these are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled, which were what? Written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. I spoke certain words, which we know are going to be inscripturated. They're going to be put into the New Testament. And these words fulfilled scripture, Moses, the prophets and the writings. We call this the Tanakh. It's the Torah, the Nethanim, the Kethanim. That's the order, the canon order of the Jewish Old Testament that encapsulates all 39 books of the Old Testament. Verse 45, and he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the scriptures. Jesus opens their minds 
so that they can now understand the scriptures that they previously did not understand. This is part of systematic theology. We need Jesus to open our mind to the scriptures. They, these folks had all of the right facts early in the chapter, but what did it lead them to? Sadness, hopelessness, a misunderstanding of redemption. Now Jesus is opening their minds to the scriptures. Verse 46, then he said to them, thus it is what? Written. And thus it was necessary. There's that divine necessity again for the Christ Messiah to suffer. There we go. Suffer again and to rise. That's glory. He's putting he's systematizing suffering, glory, suffering, rising. Verse 47. And 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 now he adds something that repentance. Here's the outworking and remission of sins or forgiveness of sins should be preached in the name of in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem and you are witnesses of these things. So he's, he's, he's done this probably the same type of Bible study he did with Cleopas and his friend. Now he's doing it for the 11 and, and everybody else. And he's got the same systematic categories of suffering, and glory, suffering and rising. But now there's the outworking. What's the outworking? It's repentance. It's forgiveness. And now it's preaching the gospel and it's missions. That's the outworking of good systematic theology being taught by Christ himself. So he opens their understanding. So so now Jesus has given us the outer edges of the puzzle, suffering and glory. He's starting to fill in the inner edges of the puzzle. He's talking about repentance, remission. He's talking about preaching and and witnessing But then he goes on to a seventh thing. Another part of this puzzle is Jesus says uh, the promise of the Holy Spirit is forthcoming from the father. Look at verse 49. Behold, I send the promise of my father upon you, but tarry in the city of Jerusalem until you are endued with power on high. Now, we know that this promise is the Holy Spirit because of things that he has said beforehand in the book of John. The fact that the father is going, he says, it's good that I go away. If I don't go away, I cannot send the comforter. And so this is a reference to the coming of the Holy Spirit. We're going to see in the book of Acts that Luke also writes that the Holy Spirit does come. And so now what what Jesus has been doing for these disciples, opening up their minds to the scriptures Now the spirit is going to come and be able to do for us. We have the same scriptures and now we have more that's been written by the apostles. And we have the Holy Spirit, which is the very presence of Christ who meets with us to open our minds corporately to the scriptures as well to help us put the puzzle pieces together. You and I, theoretically, we could all be in this room with a bunch of random facts in our heads and still be sad and misunderstanding the big plan. But when we open up the scriptures and we're taught and we're filled with the spirit, now we can begin to assemble the facts of the scriptures, get the outer edges of the puzzle, start filling pieces in, which is going to lead to a lot of different things. Repentance, forgiveness, joy, worship, fear, amazement, right? Uh, Proof when we're doubting and so on. 
Let's look at a final observation of this text. That is this. The ultimate result of this is joy in worship. The ultimate result is joy in worship. Where does this exposition of the scriptures lead? Look at verse 50 to 53. And he led them out as far as Bethany, and he lifted up his hands and blessed them. Now it came to pass while he blessed them that he uh, parted from them and carried up into heaven, and they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great, what, joy, and were continually in the temple praising uh, and blessing God. Amen. And so the end result here is joy and worship. Now, how? let me ask you a very simple question. How do we know anything about the narrative that we've just discussed? How do we know any of this information? Yeah, we've just read it from the Bible. That's the only reason we know about Cleopas, his friend, their sadness, what they went through, their doubts, Christ's appearance to them, the restraining of the eyes, the opening of the eyes, the exposition, both uh, uh, Christ's exposition for them, the exposition with the eleven and the others. We know all of this only from the Bible. And as we read this text, we're now going to make some deductions from this text uh, based upon what what we've seen the Holy Spirit say through Luke as he's recorded the words of Christ and the other apostles for us here 2,000 years later. And so let's answer in our last 15 minutes, I want to answer these three questions is what is systematic theology? And I want to answer this question right from this particular text. This is going to be a working definition. We may come back to this, and we're going to fill it out. We're going to flesh it out throughout this course. But here's what I want to suggest to you as a definition of systematic theology. It's the use of all the scriptures to thoroughly explain to the people of God, whatever God has deemed necessary to be revealed in order to gain vibrant communion with God and accomplish all the intended results and actions. That's what I want to suggest as our working definition of systematic theology for this class. We're talking about all, not some. Cleopas and his friend had some of the scriptures in mind, but they didn't have all of them in mind. All the scriptures. We're talking about Old Testament. Now we're talking about New Testament. We'll talk about canon in this class. Thoroughly explained. Tying all the relevant passages together and doing good interpretation, good hermeneutics for the people of God. We don't do systematic theology for unbelievers. We do systematic theology for the people of God. And, we, and we're going to be talking about whatever God has deemed necessary. Whatever God has put into his word, that's what he thinks is necessary for you and I to know. And that's what he has revealed to us. Christianity is a revealed religion. We make no bones about it. Nobody in this room has met Jesus Christ in the flesh that I know of. We know Jesus Christ because he's been revealed to us through the scriptures as the Holy Spirit illuminates the scriptures for us and we get born again. It's a revealed religion. In order, here's the result of systematic theology, that we might gain vibrant communion 
with God and his church fellowship. Um, that's the end result that we might have vibrant communion with him and accomplish all the other intended results that we see laid out in scripture for us. Um, their hearts burned. If we're doing systematic theology right, there should be a sense in which our hearts burn. They start to burn in our, it increases our love for God. It increases our love for people. If we're doing systematic theology, right. Um, the intended results may be terror at times, fright, doubts being overcome, proof being made, joy, amazement. Um, we experience all these things as we read Luke's narrative. Other actions will involve repentance, forgiveness, evangelism, missions, waiting, spirit feeling, worship, and ultimately joy. And Christ here has is, is given us part of the outer edges of what we're really looking for when we talk about systematic theology. We could really boil it down to verse 26 and, uh, and, 40, and 46. We're talking about suffering and glory. We could really boil everything that we're going to be talking about over the next maybe 13 weeks is going to really fit into the, either a category of suffering or a category of glory. That's ultimately what we're going to be talking about. There's other definitions. I'll send this to you online um, uh, once we get our email up for the class. Uh, Grudem says systematic theology is any study that answers the question, what does the whole Bible teach us today about any given topic? So as we look at the various topics of the Bible, we've just looked at Christology. What does the Bible say about creation? What does the Bible say about death? A lot of people have been talking about suicide lately. What does the Bible say about suicide? What does the Bible say about heaven? Uh, we, uh, Pettigrew, one of my professors in seminary, had this to say. Systematic theology involves collecting and understanding all the relevant passages in the Bible on various topics and then summarizing their teachings clearly so that we know what to believe about each topic. And I would add, and so that we know what to do with each topic. And, um, well, I'll send you, you guys don't have to write that down. We'll come back to that. Let's answer a second question. So that's what systematic theology is. Systematic theology is what we just described in the previous slide. Why study systematic theology? I want to suggest, and then again, this is a working answer to this question. We study systematic theology because it puts all the pieces of random facts together and can lead to knowing Christ relationally, burning in our hearts individually, and corporate fellowship, worship, joy, and all the intended results and actions. Let's break that down. When we study systematic theology, it puts all of the facts together for us, rather than just random facts that are dissembled in our minds that may lead to sadness because we really don't know what to do with them. When we study systematic theology, it helps us organize those facts. It puts them together and it can lead. It will not always lead. It can lead. There are some if statements, right? Systematic theology can lead to these results, but it won't necessarily lead to these results because we have a part to play in this, this puzzle game, right? It can lead to us knowing Christ relationally. On the other hand, it cannot lead to that. 
depending on how we go about it. It can lead to a burning in our hearts as individuals and corporately. On the other hand, it could just be cold, dead orthodoxy. It can lead to corporate true fellowship. On the other hand, it could not lead to that, depending on how we go about it. It can lead to worship. It should lead to worship. And it should ultimately lead to joy in the midst of suffering. That's why I believe why we study systematic theology. I don't know about you, but I'm old enough now where I think I know what I really want in life. I want to know Christ. I want to love him. I want to experience his love for me. I want to know that he loves me. I want that love to dump out of me onto my wife and kids in this church. I want to get to the end and be able to cross that river and see him. Those are the things I want. And if the study of the scriptures will help me get that, then that's what I want. Right. And I think for the vast majority of you, that's what you want, too. Don't you? Don't you want true joy um, that will result in getting there, getting to Jesus, even if it means through suffering and difficulties? Christ suffered to get to glory. We're going to suffer before we get to glory. Right. And so if we if we assemble these pieces correctly, then systematic theology is worth it. It's worth the time. And so I I commend this study to you and I commend this class to you. Truth fuels worship. Theology sparks doxology. Uh, it's good to ask if our worship feels shallow, could it be because we have a shallow theology? Without theology, there is no fuel to fire our worship. Enduring heat doesn't come by seeking more sparks. It's not just by hearing the next motivational speaker going to the next cool conference. It's just not, it's not, it doesn't happen by just having cool musical sound. Enduring heat comes as we pour the truth of God's word into our souls. What God's people most fundamentally need is a grand vision of God. And that vision of God comes from the scriptures. As Jesus has laid out the example for us in Luke 24. Let's end with this question. And that is how? How should we study systematic theology? And again, I want to make a suggested working answer to this question. We should study systematic theology um, by expounding, by studying and expounding the scriptures. We don't do systematic theology just by looking within. The Bible indicates that the heart of man is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. He who trusts in his own heart is a fool, the Bible says. You know, one of the things, I'll, I'll, I'll let you into a little inside scoop here into the pastoral world here. Um, one of the things, main things that pastors end up doing, and I never would have realized this when I was in seminary, pastors spend a lot of time with godly people helping them doubt their own perceptions. That's a, that's a, if you want to write my job description, one of my job descriptions 
is to help you doubt your own perceptions and doubt my own perceptions because the heart is wicked above all things. And but we by nature infinitely trust our own perceptions. But what the Bible's calling us to do is to take every thought and do what? Subject it to Christ and say, is this perception even right? Is this perception biblical? Is it going to glorify you? What, where should I put this piece of the puzzle if it even belongs in the puzzle? Right? That's part of what we do when we do systematic theology is we bring our thoughts and we say, Lord, I don't know what to think. Maybe you're concealing my eyesight right now. One of the things I have to tell myself every day when I get up is, Lord, I need your help because I don't know what to do. I, I, I could be just like Cleopas where by God's sovereignty, my eyes are being shut and I need God to open my eyes. And how is he going to open my eyes? He's going to open my eyes as I get in his word and I let the Holy Spirit open my eyes. And the Lord is by his grace. He's given us each other. He's given us pastors. Uh, he's given us people that can teach us the word so that our eyes can get more and more open. We can be more and more conformed into Christ. So we want to study and expound the scriptures. We want to study all of it, not some of it. The Bible's not fantasy football. You don't just choose the parts that you want, right? It's not a smorgasbord. I like this part. I don't like that part. I'll take a little bit of uh, Ezekiel over here. I'll take Jeremiah in the second round. No, it's all of it. Even the parts we don't like in community. No, it, theology happens as we're as we're studying scripture together, not just in isolation as monks. Um, while the with the aid of the Holy Spirit, we've been given the Holy Spirit, which makes the word of God more firm. Believe it or not, we'll talk more about that later with the expected results of knowing Christ. We're not just doing theology so that all of us feel smarter or so I can win the debate. We want to know Christ. We want to know his love for us with a burning in our hearts. I think this burning means that there's a sense of real presence of God in our life and, and that we sense that in the way that it's changing us and the way that we're drawing closer to him, right? Doubts being removed, repentance and forgiveness being preached and experienced, evangelism and missions uh, being part of the result of systematic theology, and ultimately worship and joy. I believe that a, a, a proper study of systematic theology can do for us just what it did for Cleopas and his friend, bring us from sadness, dissembled facts where we're really not sure what to do. And it can bring us to joy and worship as we get the edges of the puzzle. We start filling these things in suffering and glory. And uh, is this making sense to you guys? So I'm very excited about this class. I hope you guys can tell. Um, I'm excited that you're here. I hope you'll stay with us. Uh, next week, we're going to be talking about the Word of God, Part 1. You see, if you look on the front of your packet, you'll kind of see our outline. <clears throat> That's what we're going to cover over the next seven weeks. And then we'll go to Systematic Theology 2. Um, let me give you a little news brief. We're only getting halfway through Systematic Theology this year. We're doing half Systematic Theology. And then we're going to go to Church History later in the year. We'll pick up 
the second half of systematic theology next year. Um, you, what's your homework? You're like, homework? I didn't know we had homework in this class. <clears throat> your homework is this, is to go and read the passage that we just talked about this morning. Study through Luke 24, 13 to 53. Um, there's a typo on your, somewhere in your handout. S- study the whole rest of that chapter. And then there's an article, very, very short. It's like a paragraph long. Is systematic theology biblical? So I want you to read that and then come back next week. All right, so what's your homework? And read the article and then come back and invite somebody. All right, we've got 20 seconds for questions. That's our outline for the year. Any questions? Yes, sir. Yeah, so I will send you this so that you can you can link to it. You could also, if you wanted to, um, that's from um, Nine Marks. So if you just typed in, Googled, is systematic theology biblical, ninemarks.org. That's where it comes from. But it's also in the packet. Yeah, Amanda. So Amanda is asking the question that we'll have to answer next week. Why are there so many different interpretations? If we've got the same scripture, we've got the same Holy Spirit, why are there so many different interpretations of the scriptures? We'll come remind me of that question next week and we'll get to it. That's an excellent question. One last question, then I have to pray. Okay, so doc, great question. Doxology is uh, the theology of worship. So theology, the study of God, leads to worship. Yeah, excellent. Thank you for asking that. Let's go ahead and pray. And I'll be up here, by the way. I can't take more questions up here. Thank you, Lord, so much for this opportunity for us to study about Cleopas and his friend and the exposition from Christ. We pray, Father, you'd be with us as we move now into worship and that you would help us to grow thereby. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.